What have your dreams been like lately? I actually thought I might begin this morning by asking how you've been sleeping. But then it occurred to me that given the power of suggestion, that might not be the wisest way to begin a sermon. So, Besides, the imagery of dreaming is really what I want to talk to you about this morning anyhow. And so what have your dreams been like lately? Do you come away from your dreams feeling refreshed, ready to take on a new day? Or have they been more like those times when you are so busy doing things in your dreams that you actually wake up tired, feel like you've already done a day's work? You had those kind before. Sometimes our dreams, you know, can seem very ordinary, just like normal life. It's hard to distinguish when we're sleeping. And yet, at others, they can be really bizarre, sometimes frightening. There are dreams where things are going so well that we're kind of disappointed when we wake up and find out that it's really not that after all. And there are others when we are really glad when we woke up. And then oddly enough, once we're fully awake, many of our dreams seem to kind of quickly fade away, slip back into those places in our minds that we don't seem to have much access to. And yet there are others that remain vivid and seem to stay with us. We might even dream them over and over again. You know, one of the things that people who study this kind of thing tell us is that our dreams tend to tap into and kind of rise out of that part of our mind where all kinds of significant stuff gets stored, but which our conscious mind either hasn't finished processing yet or for various reasons is just not actively dealing with, may not even be conscious of. And yet, despite all this stuff being kind of tucked away out of sight, It is still stuff that manages to influence us in significant ways. might include memories of things that were so overwhelming that our minds actually tried to shield us from them by burying them somewhere away from our consciousness, where they become part of the raw material out of which dreams that are triggered by anxiety and fear kind of arise. But it may also include some good stuff and some affirming things that we have also internalized and that sits deep inside of us, out of which dreams that may be as responsive to the quiet work of God's spirit as other dreams are that arise out of anxiety and fear arise. But whether we're talking about the kind of dreams that emerge from our unconscious while we sleep or those that arise in our very conscious minds when we're fully awake, in a broader and perhaps more profound sense, dreaming provides a powerful metaphor that at least when we apply it to the Old Testament prophets we've been listening to for the past couple of weeks, conveys the idea of something that rises out from deep within, not out of a sense of unresolved fear or anxiety or maybe whatever it was we happened to have eaten, but in response to the stirring of God's spirit. And that image, in fact, describes remarkably well exactly what these prophetic messages are that we've been listening to for the last couple of weeks. And I'm not talking here so much about uh, fat and skinny cows or ears of corn or even prophetic number crunching, but a kind of dreaming and visioning that taps into something much deeper than even that, that arises out of the very depths of who God is, that these prophets catch and share and then invite us to participate in, which is perhaps what's being alluded to in places in Scripture that talk about this, like Proverbs 29:18 that tells us that where there is no revelation 
or there's no prophetic voice. Vision is the word the King James uses. The people cast off restraint. Or as Eugene Peterson renders it in the message, which I kind of like a little better, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And what I'd like to suggest God is primarily interested in revealing this morning is not insider information for prophetic calendars, but himself, the kind of God that he is, and what it is that stirs deeply within his heart about what matters to him, about his people. Interestingly enough, one of the prophets who are contemporary of some of the prophets that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks envisions a time when all of God's people will take up the prophetic voice together. The prophet Joel talks about it like this in chapter 2 of his book, and this is what he writes. And afterward, I will pour my spirit out on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And you might remember that at Pentecost, when those early believers were enabled to share the good news of the gospel now with people who had come from all over the then known world in a way that they could now understand because they could speak their language, Peter recognized that those words were being fulfilled. And in fact, he even quotes them in Acts chapter 2. You can go back and read that. The dream or the vision that the Spirit was stirring within them in which they were now proclaiming to the world and living out the gospel, that was God's dream for them and for those who had received what they shared. They were speaking with a prophetic voice to their world. Prophecy is much bigger than sometimes we realize it is. Well, for the past several weeks now, we've been focusing on several Old Testament prophets who have spoken with a very clear and distinct prophetic voice to their world. In Amos, we noticed that it was God's voice that we hear when we listen to the prophets, that it was speaking powerfully as much to the here and the now as it was to the future, and that the voice is a familiar voice. It's one that continues to graciously pursue us and of which we don't have to be afraid. In Micah, we heard the voice of a God who loves us enough to both challenge us when we need it, which apparently is frequently, and which continues to embrace us even in the midst of our brokenness, as God invites us to treat each other justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. And last week through Jeremiah, we were reminded of God's desire to identify with us and to do it in such a way that he writes his covenant on our hearts. So it's not just a matter of what we do that God instills in us, but it's who we are, the people we have become. And that no matter what situation we may find ourselves in, no matter how hard things get, we can still go on to build and to plant and to live in a way that blesses those around us. Because in the midst of it all, we still see a bigger picture. There's more going on than what our circumstances would tell us. 
But nowhere among the Old Testament prophets is God's vision or dream expressed any better than it is in Isaiah. And that's where I'd like to spend some time with you this morning. Now, clearly, there is no way that we are going to have time this morning to even start to do justice to all 66 chapters of what is in Isaiah. But we might be able to do something. We might be able to at least touch on some of the large, major pictures or pieces of this large picture that emerges in the book and maybe catch just a glimpse of the movement and the flavor of what's going on here. And maybe in that process, we might get just a little taste of the dream that God has for his people and that he's trying to communicate through these writings. That he not only shares with us, but he also invites us to participate in. Well, the setting for the book of Isaiah opens in that of a very prosperous Judah. Kingdom of Judah is doing quite well. It's under the reign of King Uzziah. And in one sense, things are going so well that things have not been so good since the time that Solomon was king and he was reigning. But that's not the whole story. Because as is too often the case when things are going well and we're being prosperous, instead of that becoming an opportunity to share and to serve, it sometimes becomes an opportunity not to be a blessing to those around us, but rather an occasion for arrogance and indulgence. Those who have more and different to the needs of those who don't have quite so much. There was a kind of arrogance, in fact, that is somewhat illustrated by the story of Uzziah himself, who had become so full of himself, apparently thinking that the rules didn't apply to him. After all, he was the king. He had the power. That against all of the warnings and pleadings of the priest, Uzziah goes into the temple to decide he will offer incense himself. doesn't need these priests. It was something only the priests were allowed to do. And as the story goes, it was something he definitely lived to regret. You can read about that story in Second Chronicles 26 later, if you'd like to see the whole picture of what happened. This was a period of time when Judah was pursuing a dream that did not arise from those places deep within where God's spirit was stirring, but from more anxious places where security and trust were all about how much we have and how secure we feel, even if it comes at the expense of others even if it came by setting aside the principles of God's kingdom. Prosperity was not supposed to be an occasion for unjust enrichment, but an opportunity for blessing. But that's not the way it was working out. In fact, this is what Isaiah speaks to in chapter 1 of his book as he begins to open and talk about this. He writes, and I'm going to mess up the video people here because I didn't tell them about these two verses here, but we'll catch up with what I did give you. He writes this in in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey knows its manger, but Israel does not know. My people did not understand. And then he goes on to say in uh, verse 13, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. 
And then he invites them to consider a different kind of dream than the one they had been pursuing. He says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. In contrast to the dream that was consuming the people of Judah, Isaiah delivers to them another dream. Well, as time goes by, King Uzziah dies. He's replaced by his son, Jahan, who also passes away and is later replaced by his son, Ahaz. Now, by the time that Ahaz comes to the throne, some situations have changed a bit in the lands surrounding Judah. Israel has been overrun by Assyria, who has been kind of moving in and making their presence known in the land. And in response to this, Israel and Damascus decide that they're going to get together and form an anti-Assyria coalition. And they decided that it would be a good thing if Judah joined with them. And they decided that the best way to secure Judah's alliance was to invade Judah and replace Ahaz with someone who saw things the way that they did. So much for diplomacy. And so when they attack Judah, as you might imagine, Ahaz and all of the countryside become panicked. You can read about the story here in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Ahaz is desperate for help. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And as he looks the situation over, he decides that his only hope to survive is to turn to Assyria for help. And it's at this critical moment that Isaiah comes to King Ahaz with a message from God. And here's what Isaiah says. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. It's not going to happen. You're going to be okay, Ahaz. Just hang on. Ahaz, however, is not reassured. At which point Isaiah reminds him in verse 9 there of chapter 7, Ahaz, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Well, Ahaz is still not convinced. He wants to ask Assyria for help. This is the only thing that makes any sense under the circumstances. So Isaiah says, fine, if you don't believe me, then why don't you ask God for a sign so that you know that this is really what God is telling us right now? Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. He doesn't want to hear any more of this stuff. And so Isaiah, who is now becoming a bit exasperated with this whole process, says, fine, God's going to give you a sign anyway. And here's the sign. There's a young woman who is with child right now, and she's about to give birth to a son. And you know what? We're going to name him Emmanuel. God with us. Are you getting it, Ahaz? God with us is going to be his name. And before he is two or three years old, all of these enemies that are troubling you right now will no longer be a threat. Well, Ahaz is still not buying it. He's not about to sit around and wait for this sign. The nightmare that's stirring inside of Ahaz was much more compelling than the dream that God was trying to get him to grasp. And ultimately, he decides to choose to put his trust in Assyria rather than God. And you can read about how Isaiah characterized that decision a little later in Isaiah 28, where he describes this in some detail. In deciding to turn a deaf ear to the prophet, the king was ready to abandon God's direction in order to do what he thought would make his nation more secure. And? 
Assyria did come to their aid. There was rejoicing. But it ultimately spelled disaster for Judah. For along with Assyria's help came Assyrian domination and a whole different set of values, a whole different set of religious practices. Ahaz even went so far as to bring an altar from Assyria for the temple of the Lord, just so they could kind of mix some things together. Well, the story goes on. Later on, Ahaz passes away. And finally, his son Hezekiah comes to the throne. And for a while, despite Assyrian domination, things actually begin to go a little better with uh, Hezekiah in charge. There's reform in the temple. A lot of the idolatrous practices are put away. And for a while, with Isaiah's encouragement, he even resists attempts by his neighbors, particularly Egypt, to enter into a new alliance against Assyria. He decides that instead he will trust God's ways instead of what seemed to be the politically expedient thing to do. But curiously enough, over time, with the help of some flattering visits from foreign dignitaries, apparently, a different dream begins to emerge in Hezekiah's mind. And much to Isaiah's dismay, Hezekiah enters into an alliance with Babylon and Egypt in an attempt to get rid of Assyria and shake himself free from their domination once again. And the result was a disaster. Forty-six towns in Judah fell before Jerusalem finally came under siege. And at that point, Hezekiah finally decided that maybe this was a good time to put his trust back in God again. And the story goes, God graciously intervened. The city was spared, at least for a while. And we can continue on with the flow of the stories that uh, we find reflected here in the book of Isaiah. But by now you should be getting kind of a flavor of what is going on and what's starting to unfold in the midst of this prophecy, this book of prophecy. In the midst of other dreams and visions that arise from other places, and which from the standpoint of conventional wisdom seem so much more sensible and so much less risky, we hear the prophetic voice that Isaiah continues to bring to the king and to the nation, and to the people. And even though it is frequently not heeded, we find that God never stops pursuing them, never stops inviting them to come back, still offers them a share in a much larger dream and vision, something much bigger to embrace and participate in, as reluctant as they were to take part in it. When they go into captivity, which does finally happen, God goes with them even there and promises that if they're willing, he will bring them back out again and restore them. In fact, the last half of the book of Isaiah is like a gallery of portraits of what God envisions for his people, what his dream is, the way things can still be. They are admonitions and invitations to turn away from failed dreams and to embrace and to take part in what God wants for them right here and now in the setting they find themselves in, and what will finally be realized in all of its fullness when there is a new heaven and a new earth. In chapter 40, for example, a people who are now captive in Babylon, to them God sends words of comfort and reassurance and promises renewal for those who will continue to entrust him. And an invitation to become a part of this project that you may remember or have heard about this building of a highway for God 
For the high places will be brought low and the low places will be raised up. And all of mankind will see the glory of the Lord revealed on this highway. And then in the chapters that follow, there is the imagery of the servant of the Lord that Isaiah talks about. Who all of God's people are called to be like. Someone characterized by graciousness and gentleness and justice. Who would bring sight to the blind and freedom to the captives. Who would be a light to the Gentiles. And astonishingly would recognize even in their enemies, children of God who were as much in need of redemption and grace as they were. In fact, in an amazing chapter, in chapter 19, Isaiah even goes so far to say that this highway they're going to build is going to run right through Jerusalem all the way to Assyria on one hand and to Egypt on the other. And that both of these countries who had been their oppressors and captors would be participating together with them in the dream and the vision that's being shared because they are also God's children and they are also invited to come. And even though this servant of the Lord, which we read about in chapter 53 of Isaiah, would suffer for offenses that were not his own, Healing and reconciliation would come as a result. It was a dream of what God longed for his people to be like and to experience. And that later New Testament writers would realize had been fully embodied in the person and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was the premier fulfillment of the dream that God has for his people. These prophecies were all messianic in the sense that Jesus pulled them all together and embodied what God had wanted for them all along. In fact, when Jesus wanted to describe himself and his own ministry, he often turned the language of Isaiah to do it and said, I am the fulfillment of all of this. This is what it can be. Well, there's so much more we can look at here. There's the description in chapter 58 of what genuine fasting looks like, where we're reminded that real religious devotion always shows up in concern for others in caring for the poor and looking after the issues of social justice and that the experience of Sabbath keeping is tied directly to that. In fact, if you have time this afternoon, I'd like to invite you to read chapter 58, all of chapter 58, not just the last two verses that we usually look at. I think the context will amaze and challenge you. This is the dream, especially Sabbath keepers are called to embrace and participate in. Isaiah is clear that the prophetic voice is not just about events in the future that will happen someday after everything has passed, but about living the life of the kingdom here and now among people that we know. You know, probably one of the best known examples of how this prophetic voice has been heard in recent years. Well, I guess it's not that recent. It's about 40 years old now, but it's still probably the best example that I can think of. It's on a video clip that I'd just like to share with you for a moment. You will recognize the figure immediately. But I also want to see if you don't also recognize the voice of Isaiah speaking in a more contemporary setting than Judah. Let's see if we can catch this here just for a moment. If it makes its way to our screen. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists. Well, in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. with Do you recognize the words of Isaiah? Do you recognize the dream? inherent in the prophetic voice. Can you imagine where we might be today had that prophetic voice not been heard and had we not listened? We've not lost the need to continue to hear that voice. The work is not done. So what does it look like for us today then in our own setting as people who are waiting for the return of Jesus and a new heaven and a new earth that both Isaiah and John spoke of. Can you imagine where Adventists and where the world might be today if we had assumed that since Jesus was coming soon and since disease is inevitable and things will only get worse until Jesus comes again, that we decided not to get involved in medicine or health care or working to make people whole? or welcomed the spread of disease as a sign of his coming and said, let's just let it happen so that Jesus can come sooner. Can you imagine what it would have been like if we had done that? Can you imagine if we'd used that same kind of reasoning about education or about the work of ADRA in third world countries? Can you imagine where we would be? Living in anticipation of the soon second coming of Jesus and a new heaven and a new earth is not to make us careless or indifferent towards the lives of people now or the lives of people around us. In fact, if anything, it should energize us, helping as much 
of the dream as we can possibly find that will be realized in its fullness in the future to be realized among us right now so that when the Lord does come, he will find us to be about his work. Which, by the way, might include things like working for social justice or human rights. Might even include caring for the planet that we live on. And finding ways, instead of labeling, to build bridges. Or to use Isaiah's terminology, a highway that extends from where we are all the way out to those places that we regard as the home of our enemies. Because those are God's children, too. Could it be possible that in our world today, that if we were still willing to listen to the prophetic voice that speaks so clearly in Scripture, that we might discover that God is still inviting us to tap into a dream that is deeper and far more real than the ones that are articulated around us today, the ones that we've been accustomed to. Deeper and more real than those that arise out of fear and anxiety, and rather find a dream that grows out of the realization of grace and the promise of God's presence. A dream that's not deterred by suffering, but one that acts justly and loves mercy and walks humbly. Or to express it in Isaiah's own words, and I'll just be reading a couple excerpts from chapter 55 and 56. You should go home and read the whole chapters today. He says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so is my word. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So maintain justice. Do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the one who holds it fast. So, what have your dreams been like lately? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful this morning that in so many ways in times past, you have spoken to us through your servants, the prophets. And in these last days, you have spoken to us in a way we cannot misunderstand through your own son. And we are grateful for the dream and the vision that you call us to live out and to be a part of that was foreshadowed in the older writings that was embodied in your life among us and that you invite us to now share with the world around us. Give us the courage to dream well, to operate out of a sense of grace and not out of fear and to allow your dream for us to be fulfilled so that when you do come, we might be found to be about your business. In Jesus' name we ask it.